0: This morning we're in James chapter 3, as I spill things, <coughs> turn there, we'll be reading verses 1 through 12, in some sense we're moving on, in other sense we're continuing. By that I mean James is uh, continuing this concept, this uh, discussion of double-mindedness and worldliness, it's just in a very different, uh, slightly different setting this morning. So let's hear The Word of our God. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect or mature man, able also to bridle his whole body, Or a grapevine produce figs, neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would illumine the scriptures by your spirit, so that we, your people, might understand that which we read and that which we hear. By understanding that we might trust you and your Son more fully. And by trusting more fully, we might obey you more completely. Be gracious to us because of the Son, your beloved, only begotten Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. I had the rather fine and interesting distinction of growing up across the street from a family that goes by the name of Mahoney. Their oldest son was a little bit older than me, and their next son was a little bit younger. And so I spent most of my time, up until they moved away in sixth grade, uh, with those two boys. And uh, we spent lots of time playing baseball, wiffle ball, football, throwing snowballs, doing all kind. We did almost everything together. They were essentially my best friends uh, up until they moved away um, when I was in sixth grade. One of the interesting things about the Mahonies was the vocabulary that the Mahonies had. It was not PG-13, brothers and sisters. (laughs) Apparently, you can can say up to three F-bombs and still maintain the PG-13 rating. In a given day, they would exceed that by far. And so I grew up listening to this all the time. And I, I, and so there was, it, was, it was interesting in that I had to I developed basically two vocabularies, I had my with the Mahoney vocabulary, <laughs> and I had my with my own family vocabulary because my family didn't speak like that. I think we do the same thing in some ways, at least before we came to Christ. Many of us learned one vocabulary. We learned not just a vocabulary, but we learned how to speak in certain ways. But that's very different from how our tongues are to be used in the kingdom. And that is part of what James is really getting at this morning. The context is that <clears throat> there are four areas of worldliness and double-mindedness that he had talked about earlier. And, and now he's getting, into the, he's getting back to that idea of speech, what we do with our tongues. The big idea, however, is that Jesus changes how we speak through the gospel. It starts with the premise that sinful speech splits the community of faith. James starts with an odd warning. It doesn't seem to fit the rest of the context. He doesn't really build upon that in a a lot of ways, but he starts with this warning about teachers being held to stricter judgment, which is a true statement. What's interesting here is that James includes him self in that very same thing. He's not talking about other teachers, but he is exempt. He recognizes that the stricter judgment will falls upon him. Part of how this connects is the idea that teachers, because of the very nature of what we do, we speak. We will be held accountable for even the smallest words we say. Stricter judgment, precisely because of the role that we place in the community of faith. Okay? But why are we to worry about this? He makes a a blanket statement. We all stumble in many ways. Now, I mentioned this last week in the idea that that James is not talking about the the idea that that our works must be perfect, that our obedience must be perfect, because here he lays out the, the present tense reality that we all stumble in many ways. We all are tripped up. We all go astray in a number of ways, particularly when it comes to the idea of speech, what we say to other people. And in today's era, what we type, what we Twitter, what we Facebook, what we blog, what we email. Okay, It's the same sort of thing that goes on. So everything I say there... Uh, everything, I, everything I say about speech also applies in that region as well. A variety of ways. Think about that for a moment. What are the number of ways in which we can sin with our speech? I gave the easy example of my neighbors across the street. We can, we can easily sin in that way and in, uh, in saying words that probably ought not to be said. But more importantly, there are things like deceit. Whether it's a politician trying to avoid the consequences of his actions through deceit or any one of us trying to do the same thing. Whether uh, it's that or slander. How many blogs slander other people? Bringing up false charges, making up things about people. Gossip. The repeating of the sins of others that should be private but now are being made public is one of the many sins in which we stumble. Abuse of speech, which is what makes profanity so bad at times, but it doesn't have to be profanity. Idiot, moron, jerk, are just as offensive to God as other words that we tend to think are really bad. Mockery. There's another one of the many ways in which we can fall, and there are so many more. As a deep, James is absolutely right. We stumble in many ways with our tongues. Sinful speech, in fact, is one of the more stubborn types of sins. He brings this up in the idea that if you're able to do this to control your tongue, you're able to control your whole body, the inference being that the tongue is probably one of the last things to be controlled, to be brought into submission to God by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's a stubborn and persistent sort of thing. Okay, it's the complete, it's the mature man in Christ or woman in Christ that is able to do this, which means that all of us in this room most likely struggle with what we say. We most likely sin against others and ourselves in what we say. And what happens is it's not just you hurt a person, but you can also hurt the community. Remember, we're talking about the whole idea of the community of faith. What does that look like? And and these sins begin to fracture and splinter and destroy the community. Proverbs 10 is one that I memorized, but in a different translation. But in the ESV, it goes this way. When words are many, transgression is not lacking. But whoever restrains, restrains his lips is prudent. Do you get what the, what the Proverbs are saying there? And you'll notice, if you go through Proverbs, an awful lot of them have to do with what we say. Okay, It recognizes what's going on there. But the more words that are present, the more likely there is sin to be present. It is not going to be absent. So I'm one of those people that when I get tired, I ramble. And what's probably going to happen? Yes, my wife is shaking The likelihood of sin is increasing the more tired I get because the more I speak and the more I have to shut up. Okay? And so it's a very stubborn sin. James goes on to say that the tongue is a fire. He mentions that a small fire can burn down whole forests. Think of what is going on right now east of us. Uh, how a, a small fire started, I don't even know how this the Wallow Fire started, but a campfire, okay? It's a small, contained little fire, you know? It wasn't a bonfire. This small fire has now eaten up over 670 square miles of forest. Small fire, great damage, far greater than anyone would have imagined. I'm reminded, uh, this is an older, I don't know, Four or five years ago, I, I don't know. Remember the Wendy's commercial when they just got the the spicy chicken sandwich that came out, and there was this, I remember this one guy in the office, and he had just enjoyed the spicy chicken sandwich, and every time he opened his mouth, fire would shoot out of his mouth, and so pretty soon his whole office is on fire. And I remember was like, ah! he's like, "Whoa!" because he's shocked at what happened there. You know, that's our tongues. We don't see it, but it's like fire can shoot out of our mouths and and destroy that which is around us. I believe that's a very good image to keep in mind as we think about the sins of the tongue. Because the tongue and what it produces can burn down marriages. It can burn down families. It can burn down congregations. One of the things I did not mention in terms of the, the sins of the tongue, particularly pertaining to teachers, is that of false teaching. Okay. I, I told someone recently about what happened at the church I pastored before I even got there. Okay, I walked in at the aftermath of everything that had happened after the after everything took place. It was one Sunday morning in Sunday school. The, patch, the pastor taught something false. Okay. That's his. That was his first sin. The elders rightfully said, uh uh-uh, uh, you can't teach that here, and, and they talked with the, the Minister's Work Committee, and he said that he was going to recant that which he said, deceit, number two, <laughs> sin. Okay. Soon he was politicking, getting getting weak-willed people to, to sort of lobby for him to defend him against these supposed allegations. Now he's beginning to split the church. The tongue is a fire which can burn down whole congregations. And so by the time I got there, less than half of the people remained, battered, bruised, wounded, and the church would never recover from the damage that that man had done, but primarily with his tongue. This is why James continues to go on. Not only is the tongue a fire, but it is a restless evil full of deadly poison. He wants people to realize how serious this is. Because as Jerry Bridges' book, uh, Respectable Sins, notes, we tend to think of the sins of speech as fairly respectable, but James doesn't look at them that way. A restless evil. That word restless is the same one we saw in chapter 1 with the double-minded man. It points to this double-mindedness that takes place. Okay, But he's also talking about death. And I was reminded, my wife and I are going through the seasons of house. And uh, there there was this one episode um, where a man has alien hand syndrome. That's something i really ever heard of, apparently exists, but uh, basically his left and right brain were not in harmony with one another, (laughs) and so his left arm did whatever his right brain wanted him to do, which was not in touch with what he consciously wanted to do. So this created some very interesting situations because there was this girl that he really wanted to spend time with, he wanted to get to know better, he wanted to date her, and yet when she brought him something, the alien hand hit her in the face. Working at odds, a double-mindedness. And that's the picture that James is sort of writing for us here, this double-mindedness that takes place where we want one thing and yet we do another thing. Paul talks about that as well in Romans chapter 7. Okay? The double-mindedness that goes on. So do you, do you get a sense of the great evil that these common respectable sins really are? He gives one more. With it, we curse people. Okay, This is not cursing like we tend to think of cursing, saying bad things. All right, This is... Well, it's saying bad things, but it's a little different. It's the idea of asking God to do harm, to burn down, to, to harm other people. And in this case, it seems to be Christians. Yeah. I used to watch, watch MASH when I was doing my math homework when I was a kid in high school, in middle school. And I remember one of the things that uh, Klinger would always say, May the fleas of a thousand camels infest your armpits. Okay? Well, this is sort of like that, but not funny. A curse is asking God to destroy somebody, to inflict harm or punishment. It's the idea of the imprecatory psalms, break their teeth, dash their children upon the rocks. And so this is not a good thing. It is cursing people who are made in His own, in God's image, which means it's ultimately an assault upon God himself. Why do I say this is about the community? Partially because of passages like Ephesians chapter 4 where Paul, Paul points to the power of words to build up or to destroy the community of faith. So our words are not just about our individual personal relationships but they go far beyond that to the entire community. And so we talk, blog, tweet, Facebook, email, whatever all day long often not realizing the damage we do with our sinful speech. But it's not just that sinful speech splits the community, but that sinful speech shows the status of our heart. There's more going on than just the words that come out of our mouths or out of our fingertips. There's far more going on. James's illustration, something we see of the horse and of the boat, we see that something relatively small, the bitten bridle, or the rudder, control something really big, the horse and the ship. The bit and bridle and the rudder are merely instruments. Something else sets the course. In the, in the illustration of the horse, it's the rider. He uses the bit and the bridle to determine where he wants the horse to go. And so the horse is brought under submission of the will of the rider through the bit and the bridle. And the illustration of the ship, uh, even though the wind is gusty and powerful, the ship goes through the rudder based on where the pilot, the will of the pilot is. You're probably going, in some ways, why is he bringing that up? He doesn't really kind of complete it, but G- but he's building upon the words of Jesus that we read, uh, that Dick read for us in uh, chapters 12 and 15, uh, that really the heart controls the tongue. And that the words that come out of our mouths are really just the overflow of what is actually in our hearts. Okay? The sin in our hearts finds expression through our lies, through our gossip, through our mockery, through our deceit, and more. Last night we were at a birthday party as I mentioned at the beginning of the worship service, and one of the things the kids had were squirt guns. Okay, And the only thing that comes out of a squirt gun is what's in a squirt gun. Okay, If there's nothing in the squirt gun, you can pull that trigger all you want and there's nothing coming out. But if you put soda or Coke in it, guess what's going to come out? Soda or Coke. If you put water in it, guess what's going to come out? Water. The only thing that comes out of your mouth is what's already in your heart. We have to reckon with this in numerous ways. In our heart, we find pride. We find self-righteousness. We find hatred. We find desire for control. And those things spill out in what we say. And so, as a result, our repentance cannot deal simply with the words we say. Our repentance must begin to deal with the sin in our heart that produces the words. It has to deal with the self-righteousness that goes behind gossip. It has to deal with the, the, the image management that goes behind deceit. It, goes, it has to go into the, the, the lust for control or power that goes into other forms of speech, the abusive speech that we might have. And so we have to begin to say, Why? What am I trying to gain by that speech? That we might begin to address and confess the sin, not just here, but the the sin here, so that the gospel is at work not just here, but here, because what happens here with the tongue will never change until the heart is changed. There will be no, ultimately no change in the sinful speech you have until there is change in the heart. And the only way there will be change in the heart is initially if you are repenting of the sins that in the heart that produce the sins of your speech. And so we need pardoning grace for both the sins of the tongue and the heart. We need Christ's work for us to be applied in pardoning grace as we confess those sins, because He is faithful and just to, puri- to forgive us and purify us from all unrighteousness. And so we have to bring both of those sins, or may- maybe there are more than that. But we need to bring those sins from the, the tongue and the heart to the c- foot of the cross and lay them before Jesus. It's like weeding. There's more weeds in other parts of the country than Arizona. So for those of you who've lived here most of your lives, this may not make a whole lot of sense. But I grew up dandelions. Okay, They look kind of pretty for a little while, don't they? But they're actually a big annoyance. But if you were to just come along with clippers and clip off that dandelion, what would happen? You'd soon have another dandelion pop up. you have to get the root. You can't just... Chop off the top and get rid of the weed. It's just like any other, in Florida, oh my goodness, we had so many weeds, it was crazy. Everything grows big in Florida, it seems. And so I would, I would literally spend, I could spend an hour on a weekend weeding my lawn, okay? But it does no good just to kind of pull off the surface weed. You have to try and get the root, and that's the same thing here. You're weeding, you're trying to get the root, not just the flower, But the root. Not only do we need pardoning grace, but we need sanctifying grace for the sins of both the tongue and the heart. We need Christ to be at work in us. Okay? Applying his work for us in terms of changing who we are, reforming our hearts so that he can reform our speech. We need to be able to start to target for death through the spirit these sins and, and basically unleash the hounds of heaven. It's almost like special ops stuff, you know. Sometimes, sometimes they send the guy in who all all he has is the little targeter, and he puts his little laser beam on something, and it connects with the computer via the satellite, and they send a cruise missile or maybe a They sent an F-16 in with some missiles on it. Ken knows a whole lot more about this stuff than I do. Right, Ken? Okay. Um, Sometimes it's that way. Sometimes it's like sometimes you see in movies. Because of the satellite technology, they can see what's going on on the ground, and they're able to control what's going on on the ground through communications. There he is, to the left, around the corner. (laughs) Okay? That's what we need to do through prayer. Father, there it is. I see, there it is. You know it is there. I cannot handle that sin on my own. I need Christ to strengthen me by the power of the Spirit to begin to say no to that, to begin to put it to death so that I can live in a way that honors you. That's part of what I think the psalmist is saying in Psalm 19. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. He knows he needs grace so that they will be acceptable to God. And so sinful speech is just a symptom of the sin that remains in the heart. Both must go. Which brings us to the last part of this, to speak according to gospel realities. Because each of us in this room, if if we have professed faith in Christ, it means that we we have been regenerated, which means that the process of renovation, the renovation of our hearts has begun. We're united with Christ. The Word has been implanted into us. The Holy Spirit indwells in us. See, all the resources we have through the gospel of Jesus Christ Okay, We need to begin to speak in light of those resources and realities. Instead of speaking in light of our flesh, our sinful nature. Our speech is so sinful partially because it denies these gospel realities even while it praises him. That's part of his illustration there at the end. You know, have you ever seen Topher? Has your grapevine produced a fig yet? yet. Why not? (laughs) So? (laughs) Right. It's not supposed to produce figs. And if, and one of the houses we looked at when we were house hunting, you know, they had a fig tree, and I didn't notice any grapes on it. If I go to a, a water fountain, a naturally flowing fountain, and we, we used to go get fresh spring water in Lawrence, Massachusetts, and if any of you have ever been to Lawrence, Massachusetts, you probably understand how strange that sounds to me. Fresh water in Lawrence, Mass, doesn't make sense. But to go to one spring, you're, it's not like you... Oh, uh, that, I'll turn the spigot on for salt water this time. You know, and then, uh, no, I need a little bit of fresh water. Only one kind of water comes out. It's either fresh or it's salty. That's it. Okay? And so he says it shouldn't be <clears throat> that our, our speech is double-minded, as if it flows from two different sources. Okay? <clears throat> That's the, the point of his illustrations there. And so as we deepen in our understanding and our application of the gospel, what happens is that God begins to change our speech because he has been changing our hearts. It is the mature Christian I mentioned that was able to bridle the whole body, including the tongue. Another thing that he mentions here is, is how, again, how incongruous this is. I hope I just said that right. Um, because according to the creation mandate, we're supposed to subdue all of creation. We're supposed to bring it all under rule. And, he, and, and James mentions that indeed we, we subdue all kinds of animals horses, cows, even lions to a degree. We have killer whales doing tricks for us at SeaWorld, right? We're, kind, we're able to to subdue all kinds of things, but he says no one no one can subdue the tongue. I think of our dog, Lulatic. That's my that's one of my nick one of my affectionate nicknames for our dog, because she seems untamable. Our other dog was so domesticated, you know, but but she's still learning these things. She's still She's good with people. It's with other dogs that the problem exists. And we're, we're working on that. And so it's, it's, we're, we're trying to tame the dog. And so it is that by grace we begin to tame our tongues. And part of that is that a heart that is nourished by the implanted word will begin to speak increasingly like that word. Okay. Sinclair Ferguson mentions something like that. That the the proof that God's word feeds our souls will be heard in the words that come from our souls. James is getting there with that idea of the implanted word. There's something there that ought to be overflowing in what we say. And so if your heart is being nourished by that word, you will begin to see things according to that word. And then you'll begin to say things according to that word. Okay? And it's not just, <clears throat> I'm going to frog your throat this morning. It's not just speaking to other people, but sometimes it's also speaking to ourselves. Do you talk to yourself? Yeah, you do. All of you every day. What happens when you fail? Whether it's sin or just some stupidity. Do you talk nicely to yourself? Or do you lay in to yourself? What a stupid, ignorant jerk. Is that what you do? Something along those lines. Maybe you have different favorite words to insult yourself with. Okay. we abuse ourselves just as much as we abuse other people with our words even though we have been made and remade in the image of God I had, a, I had a counseling professor he was one of these guys who kind of flies in does a class, flies out and he must have been a very perceptive human being because at the end of one class, we were kind of going out, and he just looked at me and he said, Steve, be kind to yourself. Like, what is he talking about? And I thought about it for a little while. I'm not kind to myself. I'm made in God's image. I have to speak to myself according to that reality, that I have been remade in God's image, that I have been adopted as his child. I must speak according to my identity in Christ. And I must speak to other people according to their identity in Christ. Because what does he say? We, with that tongue, we praise our Lord and Father. Our, he, that's his identity to us now, which reflects our identity now in him, Son, We have to begin to speak according to what the gospel produces. Speak according to their identity. What what does this look like? It means that that the self-righteous condemnation that comes out of our mouths becomes replaced with life-giving rebuke. So instead of gossiping about people, we're talking to them about their sin, but we're not condemning them for their sin, we're pointing them to Jesus. That's very different than just bringing them up to destroy them before others or, or just launching into them. Our self protective lies become honest confession. But the only way they can become honest confession is if we are living in light of our justification in Christ When we realize, you know what? God's pardoned me. It's okay. The worst that can happen to me has been placed upon Christ. I don't have to live in fear of someone finding out. I can now begin to confess this. Instead of trying to control it and maintain through lies, our abusive speech can be transformed into edifying speech that is aimed at helping others to grow in Christ. I've got this book on my desk that I've been—I was first I was meaning to buy it for months, and now I've been reading to mean it for months. And Amy's going, "When are you going to read it, Steve?" (laughs) But this mere presence has, mean, has meant that I'm a little more affirming. <laughs> She's laughing. Apparently I'm not. I thought I was. <laughs> I grew up in a void of affirmation. At least that's what I, I don't remember any of it. If it happened, it just completely went by me. And so speaking affirming words is something that, that God has to begin to work in me to produce So, I'm reading a book on gospel affirmation on vacation. Isn't that great? Um, It will be read. (laughs) That's all I can promise. But by the grace of God, I will begin to speak more of that to my wife and to my children and to you, the congregants. Okay? Not only that, but ambitious slander begins to affirm Christ's work in another person. What am I... What, is what, what am I talking about? What I'm talking about is Christ beginning to work through you to edify and encourage and infir- affirm one another in what Christ has done and is doing and will be doing. Does that make sense? But we recognize through the warnings that he places in this text, that that is a very difficult thing to do. It doesn't take place overnight because there's still stuff in here that needs to go. And it's hard to dislodge, sort of like a bunch of pack rats. You don't get them out <laughs> very quickly or very easily. And so... Our words, spoken and written, are an expression of our hearts. If they're governed by the flesh, they will produce death and destruction. It's almost like a soul tsunami or a wildfire. Governed by the Spirit, however, they can produce edification and encouragement. The fact is is that sinful speech is something that plagues us more than we care to admit. Ask your spouse or your best friend but be prepared to not like the answer. But Christ works in us to sanctify our speech by sanctifying our hearts. And so let's persistently pray for him to do just that because it is something he must do. Let's pray. Father, we ask even now that you would be sanctifying our hearts that by the Spirit you would be applying the work of Christ for us, by by working in us, because it is only then that the meditation of our heart and the words of our mouth will be acceptable to you. So help us, Father, to grow in grace, that our words might be filled with that same grace. In the name of the living Word, who sits upon the throne of grace, we ask this. Amen.